Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. It's summer, guys. It is summer, right? I need, hey, I need to know, hey, just one summary thing that you did today, just, or not today, but this week, this last week, one like summary thing, not summary like an abbreviation of something, I mean like summer E. You what? You hiked 16 miles in Utah, okay, you get the fitness award. I was thinking more like sipping colorful drinks on the beach, but okay, perfect. Anybody else, summary? That's what I'm talking about. Now, was the hammock in your backyard? Was the, on the, a hammock on the beach? All right, last I checked, I didn't see a lot of trees uh, hanging around. So is this one of those like self-folding like folding thingies? What beach are we talking about? What? In Long Beach? There are trees in Long Beach? Okay, I don't, we don't go to that beach. That's, there are sharks. There are sharks there. All right, one other thing, one other thing. Come on, a summary. Anyone barbecue? Yes, ma'am. Okay, that's summary. I like that. They picked up their daughter, Summer. Well done. Well done. We appreciate puns here at Vox. Um, good morning. It's summer. So look around. These are the people who really love God. All right? Just to be clear. Um, uh, so what we want to do, if you are new, welcome. Um, you can find out more about us at voxoc.com. We've got a new to Vox dinner coming up this week that you can sign up for. Let us know you're coming. Um, we built uh, this community on three convictions. One conviction is that people who come in late are loved more than the people who come early. Uh, no, that's not a conviction. One conviction uh, is that the, the role of the church in the world is to love and serve the world, not to sit in judgment of it. One conviction is the uh, desiring deeply to capture the hearts and minds of the next generation. And then the third, uh, the, the third conviction, and the one that we spend a lot of time on in service, is the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. So we're highly encouraging of people asking questions, um, people sharing real stories, people not having it together. So uh, we're going to start with a bit of Q&A. Here we go. Text your questions. If you're on Facebook, good morning. Get off Facebook and go live. <laughs> text your questions. That's the phone number. You can text from Facebook. Why not? Do you focus on Jesus so much because the rest is too hard to believe and swallow? Um, uh, well, okay, it's an, that's an interesting question. So, so I would say we focus on Jesus so much because he's the, he's the most important part of this deal. Whether or not Noah and the ark was a global flood or a local flood. Whether or not Adam and Eve were literal people or they were archetypes. Whether or not um, uh, the, the God of the Old Testament commanded genocide or that's what the Israelites misheard. Um, we think those are great and important questions and we think you can make progress on those. But the best way to approach the Bible, the best way to approach this Jesus thing is through Jesus. So the reason we talk about him so much is he's the doorway into the rest of the conversation. It's not that, that the rest of it is hard to believe and so hard to swallow, because for me, I get to the rest 
that's so hard to swallow through Jesus. So, so if I'm convinced that this Jesus guy's unique, I, then I ask the question, well, how does Jesus see the Bible? How does he see the Old Testament? And uh, so I get to the Old Testament that direction. But, but I, I get what you're saying and that, yes, the, one of the very damaging things the American church has done has been to give people the impression that you have to swallow every single interpretation of every single Bible passage in order to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And that's not true. So we, so I get what you're saying, but I, I nuance it just a little bit <laughs> to say, no, the, the whole thing rests on Jesus. And if, that, if Jesus is what God is like, then I can go back and read the rest of the text with a different perspective than if I just started in Genesis and spent you know, half the year in the Old Testament before I got to Christ. Make sense? All right, that's clear as mud. Next, that's a great question. Hey, Mike. Hey, where do you draw the line between hypocrisy and being polite? You give the example of your family arguing in the car and then stopping and putting on a smile before coming to church. Wouldn't it be rude to continue an argument in public? In a similar manner, I engage in controversial behavior using strong language and drinking. What? Here, I do that when in a context that won't offend people, but I refrain from doing so around my parents and family as they disapprove. Is it hypocrisy to avoid behaviors that offend others when they are present? I consider that common courtesy. Thoughts. Ooh. All right. Now, I'm the wrong guy to ask this of. Uh, because I am firmly convinced of being the same way everywhere and having people just deal with it. Um, and I'm not known for my sensitivity um, to whether or not I'm offending people, but, or my politeness. So, from an abstract external point of view, I would say this. You have an excellent point. Yes, we're not always working out our stuff in front of people. Yes, there are times when to honor social norms, to remove offense, we're not, we're, we don't, we, the real card stops somewhere. Totally, totally get that. My issue is this. If you're one person in one context and another person in another context, which is the real person? That way of being and living in the world is not conducive to authentic Jesus following. And here's the reason. Hypocrisy comes in so many different ways. We think of hypocrisy as saying one thing and doing another. But the deeper meaning of hypocrisy in the Bible is pretending to be righteous, but then not being righteous. Do you see the difference? The difference, it's the difference between, okay, on, on the one hand, my words and my actions, but on the other hand, these people see me as godly, but I'm really not. Or I pretend to be godly, but I'm really not. Do you see the difference? Hello? So for me, yes, I engage in kinds of behavior over here because this is what I want to do and people aren't offended. But then when I'm with people who disapprove, I don't engage in that behavior. That, okay, but that can very easily lend itself to becoming that second kind of hypocrisy, which is I'm portraying a form of righteousness that isn't true of me in my heart. And the righteousness that Jesus is really interested in is what you're, what's going on in here. Make sense? Okay, well, all right, next. Great, these are great questions. You mentioned on Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago, that the list of theological deal breakers is very small compared to the list we've been given in the American church. Can you walk through that list? What should it be, what should it be 
what should be on it versus what we've been told or just generally accepted is on it. We did a whole podcast, thanks to you, so that's coming out in, I think, two weeks. So if that was you, great job, we did a podcast on it. So, because it took that, it took that long to list all of the deal breakers. Okay, knowing the ark, it is a global flood, and if you don't think so, it is a six-day literal creation, and if you don't think so, I'm kidding. No, that's not, no, anyway. Uh, you know, the reason I try to be funny is for me, because clearly no one else is into that. Question four, there were several references in today's sermon. First of all, let's not ever call this a sermon. All right, let's just not ever call this a sermon. Let's call it friends gathering together and listening to one guy monologue. (laughs) There were several references in today's sermon about receiving a reward on one's own or alternatively receiving a reward from God. So yes, Jesus was talking about don't pray in public in order to win the approval of people because their approval is all all the rewards you get, but pray in secret and the God who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Uh, but there wasn't much an explanation about what these rewards tangibly are. Well, that's because Jesus doesn't explain what they are. I get that receiving attention, recognition, and praise from others can be rewarding, yes. Which Jesus spoke against, yes. But what exactly are the rewards that God gives to people who do good works in, in secret and don't get the recognition from others? I love, now this, this is awesome honesty right here. I have a seriously hard time comprehending what is a reward in heaven, And that, frankly, doesn't seem desirable as an alternative. (laughs) However, I can see the more monastic view of contentment and peace in the here and now being more deeply satisfying in the long run than momentary and fleeting bursts of pleasure from recognition or praise. Is that what Jesus is getting at, or was it just about getting a reward in heaven, whatever that means? What does it mean? Or was Jesus just making a point about allegiance to God? (laughs) That is an Okay, you guys are on fire. This is awesome. Who, who else asks those? Yeah, rewards in heaven doesn't sound all that awesome. Let me just tell you right now. I love that, and I totally get that. But, but it's better than the rewards of the other place, evidently. So, you know, even that. No, um, I, I would simply say this. Rewards in heaven, uh, it, it's a common Jewish way of speaking of the blessings that come now, which you mentioned, and the blessings that come in the age to come. The blessings that are now are things like um, avoiding hypocrisy, authentic relationship with God, peace, I mean, the, the, the cultivation of spirit life, all of those are huge. The blessings that come in the age to come depends on how you see the age to come. If you see heaven as simply this floaty place where we have wings and some people have bigger houses than others, you're ridiculous and don't have a biblical view of what heaven is. Because as it turns out, we spend forever with resurrected bodies on a new earth with a new heaven coming down and God being with us on a renewed earth with new bodies. And us doing very human things and the images that are used about what happens in the new earth is that human beings are now stewards of the earth in ways and with power that's simply not available to us because of our fallen state. So I don't know what the rewards are. That was just a very Jewish way of talking about both kinds, rewards today and rewards sometime in the future. But great question. And I totally get when Jesus talks about rewards in heaven, you're like, um, okay. I totally get that and love your honesty. But that, that also could speak to the fact that you have a very deficient view of what the heavens turn out to be. 
Um, if it's just floaty in the sky with crowns, okay, I got that. If it's some other thing, well, that becomes a bit more interesting. All right, hopefully there's nothing else. Boom, there's nothing else. Fantastic. My goodness. I don't prep it for these, and so I just I pick the ones that are semi-short and seem broad enough for everybody, and then I forget what they are. And so I would give myself a C- minus on that set of questions. But here's the thing. And this is very important that you understand this. Some questions we answer on Facebook. Some questions we turn into podcasts. Some questions we turn into sermons. The answers aren't the point of the questions. Because frankly, they're not all that great. The point of asking the questions is normalizing and legitimatizing the fact that people can have sincere doubts, wrestle through these things in a church and faith context safe to talk about anything. So that's the point. That's why even if we don't always answer them, we read them and, and, and try to do them a bit of justice. Another way we manifest this is we tell stories. And we don't just tell the, hey, I was raised a Christian and life's been awesome. And if you're not a Christian, your life blows chunks and become a Christian and God will fill the God-shaped hole in your heart. We're not huge fans of those stories because they don't always reflect. Um, those stories are usually told by young people who've not, you know, who've not lived into the old age that most of us are familiar with. Um, and I mean most of you And um, when I say that. And so the stories we're interested in are how God is faithful in the midst of pain, in the midst of process, and what victory looks like in the midst of turmoil, and not just the absence of suffering, but in the midst of it, what does it look like? So um, this one we've been excited to tell for a while. Um, this is my friend Aline. She's part, original part of our launch team. She, say hello, say hello to Aline. Uh, we had to pay her to do this. It was such a big deal. With rewards in heaven. So take it away, young lady. My name is Aline, and I've been a Christian for about mm, 22 years now. So you, you started when you were three. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, but depending on the day, I find myself really uh, moving between uh, the roads of complete construction of my faith and the complete reconstruction of my faith. One of my earliest memories as a child is that of me growing up in a Catholic church and of my third birthday. Mm. Uh, I was with my mother and my godmother, and we were literally <coughs> racing through the streets of Mexico City uh, because we were terribly late to a service in which I was expected to um, deliver a um, and actually present Agreed. a beautiful, gigantic bouquet of flowers to a very big and inexpressive statue of the Virgin Mary. Wow. So uh, we eventually made it there, but I remember getting there and asking myself and wondering why this inexpressive statue of the Virgin Mary needed my beautiful flowers. And two, I remember really looking at that ornate cathedral, looking around and thinking to myself, uh, I don't think this is really where God lives. And you're three? Like, you're three when yes. you're thinking these thoughts? Yes, and I remember, and it's, one of my, it's my earliest memory, it's very clear to me. Oh my so goodness. I remember thinking to myself that he didn't live there, and it was weird, I just always felt him to be present with me. And I just knew him, and because I knew him, I didn't think he lived there. So anyway, so then my family claimed themselves Catholic. Um, the idols, the rosaries, and the infrequent visits to these large ornate cathedrals, those were really the only reminders of our Catholic faith. Otherwise, our home was broken. Um, I was in a broken home. My father was left us when I was, I think, one, just before I was one. 
Um, he was a gambler and a bachelor um, womanizer, and because of that, he really had no time for me, and so he mm. just wasn't around. Um, our home was also pretty violent, and had this ever-revolving door of men that um, came around, and none of them were quite up to the task of being that parental figure for myself or for my brother. Mm. One of them very specifically um, would only stick around in the picture if my mom agreed to send myself and my brother to uh, boarding schools. So I remember very clearly, um, that's probably, what, probably around six then, and I remember very clearly praying to God. That's my earliest, most fervent prayer. God, please let this guy not stick around. Um, please let him leave. Please don't let him send us away. Um, and eventually that went into the pitfall part. And um, it was really that moment where um, it was my first time where I really felt God tell me, you're safe. And so that's really my first, first memory of God um, speaking to me then. Hmm. <clears throat> when it all became too much to bear for my mom, that whole situation and dynamic of us living in Mexico City, she decided that we would do whatever it took to, she decided that she would do whatever it took to remove me from that situation. And um, we hopped on a plane and came into California illegally. What? <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> what? Next, yes. Citizen now, but very illegal then. Um, the uh, first few years after that are Jesus hates blur. refugees. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, God. <laughs> So the next few years were a complete blur of like sleeping on floors for family members, couch surfing with um, like families that we knew. Um, we really had nothing. We came here with nothing but really like the clothes on our back. Um, but here's the thing, God always provided. Uh, we, I, we, were, we were never really in danger um, and we never really went hungry. So um, mm. that's, that's mm. really how I knew God then. I knew him to be my provider and my protector. Um, at that point, I was probably around seven, six or seven years old. Seven years old, about to oh turn eight. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I with don't us, know. Are we going every year? Because, I mean, no, no, this, no, no, could no. Take, this could take no, about... No, 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 no. I'm No, jump, but I'm it's amazing. Forward. Like, at seven, I was thinking about Scooby-Doo and G.I. Joe's. I told you. That's why I shortened the story The definition bit. of privilege, I think, <laughs> is what that is. So anyway, I had two aunts that were Christians, and they, um, they were Christians, and they were Christians in the way that they didn't really share their faith with us in the way that they like constantly preach the gospel at us. Instead, they took us in, they um, opened room for us in their like extra rooms when they had them, on their couches, they fed us, they celebrated us. Um, that's really how they showed their Christianity to us. And so mm. that um, proved to serve us well because about three years later, my mom, I watched my mom be baptized in the oceans of Corona del Mar, so that was pretty cool. Wow. Um, shortly thereafter, of course, I became a Christian as well, and we really tried to lay roots down somewhere. And in doing so, we ended up in um, a Crystal Mega Church. The Crystal and, Cathedral? Yes, the Crystal Cathedral. Oh, nice. We ended up at the Crystal Mega Church because they had a Spanish service, and they, um, and they also had like, some really cool youth programs, so that's where we ended up. And, um, and we'd go both to the Spanish services to the English services, and that's really quickly where I learned that I didn't quite fit in. Um, if I was with the English youth, I was way too Mexican to be hanging out with that group. And if I was with the Spanish service people, I was way too whitewashed to be hanging out with that group. And so that was the beginning of me really beginning to understand that I maybe didn't really exactly fit into church. Um, so anyway, um, sorry. Despite that, it was there that I would um, eventually meet my husband and the, ch and the father of my, we have a little three-year-old son. Um, so, and that's really been my relationship with God. It's been that no matter where I've been, um, angry, alone, lost, broken, inadequate, even borderline dangerous, 
God has been present and despite any circumstance has continuously, sometimes with me kicking and screaming, um, shepherded me to him and to really where I'm supposed to be. But rebellion is innate, and at some point, after falling, after falling out of sorts with that crystal mega church, I continued to struggle to find my place in church or anyone that was comfortable enough to answer questions that I had, and I quickly became disillusioned with the whole thing. My life became a blur of kamikaze shots, parties, an endless search for approval, validation, affection, and really most of all, control. Mm. That became far louder than any of the whispers that God had put in my heart. Between the seasons, though, I would feel the pullback from God to come back and reorient. And the only really way that I knew how to do that then was to land in the local mega churches that were around. Um, but all of them came in with their pretty Red Bull stories and their own allures and contradictions. Um, I would really wanted to find a place where my husband and I could like come to church together. Um, but each one with their building projects, with their pretty Red Bull stories and their qualifications for exception, acceptance, um, really repulsed them, each one more than the other. And so us going to church together was completely out of the question. Um, so, but I kept trying to go back to church because I kept feeling that pull and I would sit there alone. I'd go to church and I'd sit there alone um, looking at other families that I felt or that I at least thought looked like they were very happy, like they were very put together and here I was alone. Um, it made me really kind of bitter um, at God and at my husband, to be completely honest with you. Why was I sitting there alone every weekend, sometimes feeling like I might be drawing closer to God, but further from my husband? It felt risky to me, and every time I sat there alone, I wondered if it was even worth it. Despite that, God put people in my life completely outside of church to mentor me, and as they mentored me, they kept talking to me about this guy named Jesus. And despite the fact that I had been a Christian at that point for about 18 years, I have to be completely honest with you that I didn't really know who he was. Um, are you wondering how the heck is that possible? Well, the guy confused me. Um, so I kind of just avoided him in topic. The resurrection thing was weird, and I really didn't understand how I got how the creator of the universe would know me personally, but I didn't really understand how there was this guy, flesh and blood, so to speak, that was born many thousands of years before me that would know me, would die for me, would want to forgive me, and honestly, mm -hmm. for what, right? Right. Um, so I remember praying to God one night, um, God, I get you, but I don't get this guy. Um, he really feels like a stranger to me. Help me make sense of this Jesus guy. And so he honestly answered that prayer. It wasn't that night, but it was several weeks later that I had this very clear dream where I was, uh, where I dreamt two verses from Hebrews over and over and over and over all night. And I have God to tell you something. That. God doesn't do that. It was stuff super anymore. weird. And I have to tell you that I, I had never read the book of Hebrews before, ever. And I, when I woke up, I didn't even really remember what the verses were. So I woke up and I actually read the entire book of Hebrews because I was like, what the heck was I dreaming? It was so bizarre. Um, and so when I read it, I came to a very quick conclusion that the book of Hebrews actually tells us what the purpose for Jesus being, um, why Jesus mm. was here. And I was totally mm. blown away. Um, so it's a crazy story. Um, that morning answered lots of questions for me, but ushered in many others. With Jesus added as a focus point, everything related to my faith simultaneously either came together or completely fell apart. Um, and thus my search to get to know this guy better really began, and so did the spiritual warfare. Health issues for both of us, stress, depression, brutal anxiety, and chaos mm. crept into our home. It was a very scary time for us, but we clung to each other um, and did our best to take care of each other as we recovered. Um, we used to like say something to each other. We used to say, we have to get better mind, spirit, or is it mind, body, and soul? And we'd laugh because it was so stinking cheesy, but it was true. So to do that, we did a lot of things to get better. But one of the things that we did is we started watching um, like web stream podcasts and through a series of like 
crazy events, we ended up hearing the Vox podcast. Um, and with Vox, we found a community that was um, interested in honesty and the courage to ask and talk about the hard things through the lens of Jesus. It made us curious to see if it could grow in us. Um, the day we kicked off Vox, and we walked in as a family together. Um, I was terrified that this could blow up in our faces like the Crystal Mega Church experience did for us many years ago, but here we are just over a year and a half later. Holy answered prayer, Batman. <laughs> Depending on the week, I teeter between the road of deconstruction and reconstruction. We walk in with our baggage, our doubts, our fears, our anger, our grief, and our questions, and whatever faith we have that, that day, and for the first time in my 22 years of being a Christian, my faith is a lot less complicated, and Jesus is the lens through which I see my Christianity now. Come on. Great job. Great. Great work. Lean. Dang. This is Cindy. She's going to lead us in worship today. That's Steve, her husband, who plays pedal steel, which is also the color of his hair, which I make that joke every single time. All right, so let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll dive in together. Father, we are so very grateful for your faithfulness in the midst of hardship, because so many of us live in that space, maybe differently, but the, the emotions of loneliness, the emotions of betrayal, the emotions of feeling at risk and in danger, those are the same. And so, God, we ask that you would show yourself uh, this morning to, um, to be beautiful and far more delightful than I think many of us realize. Help us to understand, Lord, the significance of what it is that you've done and, uh, and meet with us um, as, we, as we sing, as we eat at the table, as we um, listen to the scriptures. Um, God, would you form us and shape us into people who look and act and talk more like you. We love you and for that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 5, if you are a Bible person um, and have an app, um, an actual book, there's these th the things that have pages in them. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, now, if, look at me. If you're new to our community or new to the Bible, um, this, one's, this, one, this one's pretty weird and it kind of requires the two weeks prior to understand what Jesus is doing here. And I can't go over that again. Uh, Jesus is defending himself against an attack that he is misinterpreting the Old Testament law. He's gonna show off his exegetical chops uh, by using three examples from the Ten Commandments, three examples from the book of Leviticus to show how the purity of the, the religious elite of the time, the Pharisees and the scribes, actually doesn't reflect the heart of God for what God desires his people to look like and act like. And so he's gonna give a bunch of examples. We're gonna to deal today with anger and murder. And, um, it, and that's relevant for uh, my friend Andy, uh, who many of you know, he, these are struggles for him. So, um, so I think this will be good. No, but it's, it's such an interesting thing. In fact, we got a question on it last week. Uh, can you differentiate between the anger we harbor in our hearts against the injustices in the world versus the righteous anger of Jesus? I ask this because of the consequences of harboring anger in our hearts as you discussed on Sunday. So that question kind of framed um, how we're going to approach this topic. So back to Matthew chapter 5, 
verse uh, 21. Now again, there's a whole, there's two weeks of background on this, and I know you all remember it and treasure it in your hearts during the week, which you do not, but it's assumed here. So if I get questions like, hey, what's Jesus doing here? I'm, I'm just going to keep saying, listen to the other ones. All right. Jesus says, quotes from the Old Testament, you've heard it said uh, to the people long ago, you shall not murder. That was one of the big 10 commandments, of course. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now in Numbers and in, I think it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy, uh, th there was a, a way, if the murder was intentional, there was a judgment that went with that. If the murder was unintentional, there were these things called cities of refuge where a person could run to and, and take refuge from uh, punishment. And so it, there was this very complicated sort of justice system around murder. Jesus says, um, you heard it said long ago, don't murder. And if anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister... So brother or sister typically is a term for disciple, uh, another disciple, someone in the Christian community. Anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is an Aramaic word, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So go back uh, one slide, if you would. Let's walk through this. So remember, he's contrasting light and heavy commands. The heavy command is do not murder. The light command is do not hate in your heart. So Jesus says, you shall not murder. Uh, murders have been subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And that judge, notice, it's subject to judgment for murder, subject to judgment for anger. Then he says, the, the word angry here, this is really important you understand. There are two Greek words for anger. One is thumos, which means anger that flares up and then dissipates quickly. And then one is orge, which where we get the word orgy, an orgy of anger. It's the idea of a continued anger, a carried anger, a settled anger, a deliberately chosen harboring of anger. Do you see the difference? One is that instant, ah, and then one is that like very settled, determined grudge and anger against somebody. So that's that, that, please understand, that's the kind of anger he's addressing here. That settled, it's like, in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a, 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 a grammatical form. I think it's a passive present participle, for those of you that are interesting, that really has the connotation of, interested, that really has the con connotation of someone, um, Giving in to anger constantly is the idea. Someone who carries anger. So anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, and the next slide, raka. Um, this word is interesting. This word means empty or nothing. It's literally, it's a term of contempt. So there's anger and then there's anger that comes from contempt. Or, what was that? That was this? Wow, that's what I sound like? That's horrible. No wonder, no wonder our podcast does so well uh, as a sleep aid. They have this whole new category in iTunes, like for insomnia, and I just realized. Raka, young lady. 
Rakah is an Aramaic term that means a non-entity. It's a term of utter contempt. You know, uh, and, and we do this all the time, right? Um, one of the things that is the, the highest predictor of divorce is the amount of contempt shown towards uh, each spouse um, during an argument. The eye rolls, the shrugs, the exaggerated movements, the dismissal. I mean, like there's this incredible correlation of contemptuous behavior. Like, like well, all illegal I- immigrants, Aline, you know, should be kicked out. Um, contempt can be held towards groups. Contempt can be held towards people that have hurt us. So it's a very specific kind of anger that Jesus is talking about. It is a settled contempt a chosen and continually embraced contempt for another person or a group of people. And then Jesus gives three examples. Now, Jesus is always speaking in hyperbole. So this is just very, a Jewish way of saying the same thing three times, all right? Nope. That way. If you're angry, you're subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is, next slide, answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be danger of the fire of hell. He's saying the same thing three times, using very common rabbinical Jewish hyperbole. Like when he, he will say later, man, if your right hand cut, causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to go into the life to come without a hand than it is to have both hands and go to hell. Right? I mean, he's, he's constantly speaking, and one of the reasons you would do that back then is you would exaggerate something to make a point. People weren't taking notes or recording things and then playing them back. Um, and so one of the ways that you would remember very important points of Jesus' teaching is he would emphasize them in this way. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, the heavy command is don't murder, but I tell you that the kind of rightness that God desires for people way transcends just not murdering people. It's to deal with the settled contempt that many of us choose to embrace continuously towards groups of people or individuals. Makes sense so far. Now the issue, and then he uses this word, don't ever call somebody you fool. Um, The problem is uh, Jesus calls people fools. And Jesus gets angry, correct? So let's deal with that a little bit, because if Jesus, see Jesus, look at me, this is so important. Nice look, I'm glad you brought the football. Jesus isn't giving laws, he's giving illustrations. He's showing how the rightness of the scribes and Pharisees falls short of what God desires for people, namely the transformation of the human heart, okay? So, because none of us can stand if the issue is never be angry, right? Well, yeah, we're all angry. And, and that is wrong in God's economy. What he's not saying is, listen, it, being angry is as good as murdering somebody, so you may as well murder them because the punishment's the same. This is not what he's doing, all right? But this teaching of his was taken so seriously, go to 1 John, Years later, John will say, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Right? This, this was how big a deal this teaching was for the earliest Christian communities. It's not just enough to not go around murdering people or hurting them. It's that you have to deal with anger. The problem, of course, next slide, is that Jesus called people fools. Notice verse 17, you blind fools. 
And he's talking about oaths. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And that's a whole different conversation. But he says, if anyone calls somebody, you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And then here's Jesus calling people fools. Or Jesus says, don't ever be angry. And then, and then next. Another time, Jesus went in the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now we've talked about this man before at our wonderful Vox community. The Pharisees taught that it was permissible to heal somebody on the Sabbath day only if their life was in danger. A withered hand is not a life in danger at all. In fact, it was thought that if you had a withered hand, it was because you were actually grasping something or stealing something that wasn't yours. Because there's an instance in the Old Testament of a very famous king that was reaching inappropriately for the kingship and his hand was withered. So any withered hand then must mean that this person is at fault for grabbing something that wasn't theirs to take. So this man is sitting there not only with the disability, but he's sitting there with the judgment that comes from the disability. It's the Sabbath day, and this man does not need to be healed because his life is not in danger. But Jesus picks a fight, in the words of William Wallace. Some of the religious leaders were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, and we've talked about this before, stand up in front of everybody. Like, Jesus could have healed him like after the service, or Jesus could have healed him the next day, or Jesus could have healed him in private, right? But knowing people were there to try to accuse him of healing on the Sabbath, he says, stand up in front of everybody. I'm not gonna do this in a corner. I'm not gonna do this secretly. Oh, Jesus, I love that guy. Then Jesus asked the religious leaders, hey, let's talk about this whole Sabbath thing that you've made way too complicated. Which is better on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? But they remained what? Silent. What do you, how, how do you answer that? Next. He looked around at them in what? In anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man in front of everybody, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was completely healed. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, a political party, how they might kill Jesus. Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? The debate is whether or not to save life or to kill it. Jesus saves it, and because he does, now the Pharisees plan to kill him. But let's talk about meek and mild Jesus for a second. The religious leaders are there in their hypocrisy and judgment of this man, and Jesus picks a fight with him right in the middle of everybody. Stand up. The man doesn't ask for healing. Jesus picks a fight. And then in anger, what does Jesus do? He heals the man. Now anger, I have anger. It's a, it's a curious thing. It, isn't it amazing that you can be super tired, exhausted really, and then you get angry? And all of a sudden that tiredness disappears completely, right? I mean, I have, I have done the dumbest, some of the dumbest things. I've told a story multiple times of a, of a wreck we almost got into because of an idiot driver. And so I hopped out of the van and started chasing down the truck that this person almost obliterated our van with. And I'm running down a street in Costa Mesa wondering to myself, what am I going to do if I were to catch this truck? 
I had no idea. But, but all of a sudden, I could run like a gazelle, right? I mean, all of a sudden, it wasn't just the normal sort of slow, slug-like pace that I normally carry, but I was booking, right? I mean, there's this interesting jet fuel that anger provides. And so when we talk about the righteous anger of Jesus and the anger of Mike, well, there's a really a couple of simple questions to ask. What does Jesus get angry at, and what does Jesus do with his anger? Well, in this case, what does Jesus get angry at? The hypocrisy of the religious leaders and the fact that their system keeps people oppressed. What do I get angry at? Uh, Traffic, when there's not enough parking, when someone takes up two spaces, um, when when the... uh, the DoorDash order is late, um, right? I mean, these are the things I get angry at. What does Jesus' anger lead him to do? Heals the man. Does my anger ever lead to healing? Never. I think we can say that with good assurance. Or, next example. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. I don't know what they would say. Hey, Rabbi, got no time for this. Right? I don't know. Sorry, visiting hours are over. I mean, kids weren't highly esteemed, so I don't know. I mean, who knows? But the disciples, as they are wont, decided that they would insert themselves as the determiners of who gets to be around Jesus. And, um, and so the kids were not allowed to be blessed. When Jesus saw this, he was what? Indignant. Indignant. Right, a little different than the anger. Indignant is sort of uh, like it's anger plus like offense on behalf of another. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now this is a really radical teaching, but I just want you to notice here's Jesus getting angry again. But what's he get angry at? Somebody inhibiting somebody else from coming to him. And what does Jesus do with his anger? He blesses. Right? Does my anger ever result in blessing? Next. When Jesus entered the temple courts, right, John, this is from Luke, but John tells us he made a whip and he drives out cattle. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And this is a huge condemnation from the book of Jeremiah. What's Jesus get angry at? That they took the part of the temple that was meant for Gentiles, non-Jewish people to come and worship God, and they turned it into a market where they engaged in corrupt business practices. And what does Jesus do with his anger? Jesus prophetically acts against the temple to remind them of its original purpose, correct? Does my anger ever lead to prophetic action? (laughs) Nope. It leads to stupid action, normally. So when people ask, well, is Jesus prohibiting all anger here? No. Paul even says, "In, in your anger, do not sin. There is such a thing as an anger that blesses, as an anger that heals, as an anger that opens the door for others. See, the people who've decided to give their lives against human trafficking, there's an anger there. 
And they say, that should not be. Or, or the people that decide, right, we're, we're simply going to fight for clean drinking water. Or we're going to fight for this or that. Now, not every fight is a good fight, right? Not every petition is a good petition. Not every, not every anger, even though all anger feels righteous, and that's its danger. In the moment, every bit of our anger feels righteous. But when I look at Jesus and I say, what did Jesus get angry at? Injustice, hypocrisy, oppressing, oppressing people in the name of religion. What did Jesus do with his anger, though? Well, even his Pharisees, the, the ones he woes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Well, he dies for them, and many come into his movement. Right? So what's the difference between Jesus' anger and mine? Well, ask yourself this. What does Jesus get mad at? What do I get mad at? And what does Jesus do with his anger and what do I do with mine? If your anger brings about blessing and healing, keep going. But if it's like mine, it does not. And in this case, what Jesus has done has been to say to walk around being angry, but at least I'm not hurting people, misses the rightness of the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate, right? Right? So what Jesus recommends, back to Matthew 5, is that we become reconcilers. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something, what? So this isn't if you have somebody, something against somebody else. This is if you remember that Carolyn hates me. Or that, I mean, and I'm using a real life example. That Carolyn has something against me. No, she's like the sweetest woman ever. Um, but notice the difference of the teaching. You could, you could say, well, hey, if you're at the altar and you remember that you're ticked off at somebody, go be reconciled. This is a step further than that. Hey, if you're at the altar and you remember that someone has something against you. Now, what altar are we talking about? We're talking about like the altar in Jerusalem. He's giving this teaching in Galilee, three days walk. So if you take this literally, here's what he's saying. If you are at the most sacred part of your faith, the offering of a sacrifice, you've bought the sacrifice, you're in front of the priest, the priest is about to sacrifice the animal on your behalf, take the three-day journey back and be reconciled. That's more important than that sacrifice at that moment. Now again, Jesus is using hyperbole to make that's how important reconciliation is. Take the most holy moments in your life, weddings, baptisms, communion, whatever it is for you, and those moments are trumped by moments of reconciliation. Reconciliation is far more important than taking communion, coming to church, or doing anything, of, anything else that's religious. I used to tell a church I worked at, if I'm ever late and no one knows where I am, I'm arguing with my wife and we're trying to deal with it before I show up. I mean, we never argue, but I was just hypothetically, you know. <laughs> Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. See, we talk about worship and it's all about singing. How easy is singing or not singing? How trite is singing or not singing? And God says, eh, I'm not really interested in your singing if there's this kind of anger in your hearts. 
Wow. Or he, he broadens it to just be under religious sphere. He takes it to a legal sphere. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. And settle matters here, that word could also be translated make friends with. Make friends. So how practical is Jesus? Be reconciled and make friends. So here's an instance in the ancient court system. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. So we've gone from brother and sister in the faith to an adversary. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison next. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now what's he saying? He's saying this. Make every attempt with your adversary to resolve this without relying on the courts and their human rules. Because if you're gonna put your trust in the human rules, the human rules may bend backwards on you. Instead, do your best to take hold of the resources of the kingdom and settle matters with your adversary before you even get to court. Now I know that has no relevance for us, but do you see what he's saying, right? So, here's the passage. I am not misinterpreting Torah. I've come to show it to its fullest. And your rightness, the point of its fullness is that your rightness has to surpass the most pious people in Judaism. Well, what's that mean? Let me give you some examples of what I mean by this. In the Old Testament, the heavy command was, man, do not murder. But I'm telling you, do not be angry. It's just as significant a command. Why? Because... That's where murder starts. So if you're sitting around with contempt in your heart, a settled antagonism and contempt in your heart for another, for a brother or sister, I'm telling you, you are in danger. You absolutely are. What I want you to do instead is to be an, uh, an advocate of reconciliation to such a degree you're even willing to put your religious observance aside in order to be reconciled with somebody who has something against you. And to put your pride and need to be right aside in order to settle matters with an adversary in court. Okay, how radical is this invitation? So what's the kingdom? The, see, the, ki the kingdom of the righteousness and the Pharisees was well just don't murder. Do you see what Jesus has done? He's invited, he has invited us into the transformation of the human heart to deal with anger. And then not just to not be angry, but to be people of reconciliation to such a degree that we no longer resort to human courts and that we're willing to interrupt religious observance for the sake of reconciliation. So, I don't know why you're here. But we, at this point in our service, we always go to the Lord's table with the bread and the cup. But I want to encourage you to not do that if when you ask God, God, is there someone I need to reconcile with? God says, oh yes. And perhaps, now let me be clear, let me give you all the disclaimers. Reconciliation doesn't always happen overnight. Forgiveness doesn't always mean you go back to the way things were. I'm not talking about an abuser. I'm not talking about, no. I'm talking about just the standard contemptuous stuff of normal everyday life. Right? Hello? Yeah. 
And for some of you, the, the, the most transformative worship today would be to literally leave. Take your spouse or your friend out to lunch and hash through some stuff that's been sitting there. That would be far more important than whatever you're going to do here. Or to grab your cell phone and send a text that just simply says, you were right, I'm sorry. Let's talk more about this. Or like I did in the last couple of weeks, I wrote a letter to somebody who hurt me deeply and I've been carried, I've been carrying a settled contempt for that person. And when I tried to reconcile with that person two years ago, they were just as much a jerk to me and I said, I will never again even try. Well, and the Lord Jesus has said, no, I think we're gonna give it a shot. So I write a letter, I own all my stuff, haven't heard a thing back. But that's irrelevant, correct? Because I want to be the kind of person who lives that way rather than living in the settled contempt that is so easy. So we're going to open up the table, as always. Um, everyone in this room is welcome to take the bread, to dip it into cup, to eat, to take not only in remembrance of Jesus, but anticipation of his coming again. Gluten-free folks go to that side. Everyone else, you're welcome all around the room. Over here we have uh, these wooden like stands where prayer requests go, confessions go, celebrations go. We take these very, very seriously. We pray over them, we celebrate with you, we mourn with you. Um, so please take time to do that. The prayer shawls represent just a, a, a tangible way that people can ask for healing. These giving boxes around the room represent ways in which people war against consumerism and practice generosity. But this time is for you to respond to whatever it is you've heard God say. But I really want to say, for some of you, it literally may, might be. If you walk out, now maybe you're walking out just because you're tired of this and we'll never know. Because you could walk out now and we'd go, look at how seriously they're taking this. Great job. But if you're sitting there and you've got some stuff, I mean, why not practice? Why not understand that like the most spiritual thing you'll do today is apologize? Right? The spiritual disciplines, we talk about reading your Bible and praying and okay, that's, those are great. But a much more accurate indicator of your heart is your willingness to apologize when you're angry or how you treat those close to you when you're mad at them, or how you drive. Those are spiritual disciplines too. So um, we're just gonna open it up for you and uh, to respond however God would lead you. Let me pray, and then uh, Cindy will take it away. Lord God, um, it would really be much nicer if you stayed out of our business like this. It really would. I mean, lust next week, anger this week. I mean, come on. It's almost like you know us. Um, my prayer uh, is for the gentle and firm conviction of your spirit so that our anger is confronted, no matter how righteous we think it is, and that reconciliation is embraced, and that um, we would become a community known not only for being honest, but for being humble. 
humble enough to admit wrongdoing, humble enough to do the hard work of reconciliation. So to that end, Father, we acknowledge your presence and invite your power to transform hearts to be present. And we ask that you give us courage to be people of peace in days where conflict is just so easy. And I pray for my friend Tim who's yawning. Lord, wake him up, Jesus. That yawn is so symbolic of the spiritual slumber he's in. May he come to repentance in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you all stand? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming today. I hope you have a great rest of your week. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.